just gonna toss some of the things up here on the floor. Hope nobody in the worship team minds. Go for it. Good. I did that. I did that on purpose just to wake you guys all up. Hey, can I hear me? Just go on working out. Technology is always fun. Uh, I might be coughing a little bit. I don't know what happened. Just the last worship song, I started coughing like crazy. So, <clears throat> other ways to wake you up, right? Like make sure you stay attentive. Um, so yeah, this summer you might have noticed there's different speakers up here all the time, and that's because our pastors, Jamie and Heidi, are on sabbatical, which we're really glad that they're able to do. And so that means that some other people in our church get the opportunity to speak, and um, I will be taking this Sunday and a couple of after this as well. And um, when Jamie asked me, uh, of course the question always comes up, what am I going to talk about? But at the same time, I was also invited to lead some Bible studies for the organization I work for, which is InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. <coughs> Sorry again. And, um, and, and they had three texts already prepared. And I was like, well, why not just start with those three texts? Uh, and I think sometimes it's it just really, like, you can do sermons different ways, right? You can start with topics and, um, and then look in the Bible, parts that, like, that kind of help you understand that topic. Or you can just take a piece of text and just say, well, whatever is in there. And sometimes that's the more dangerous thing to do, because God sometimes says things in his text that we don't necessarily like. And as I do ministry with international students, and I can choose what text we're going to study, I sometimes feel like, oh, that's like, I don't really want to talk about it, let's skip it. So I don't get that opportunity this time. We'll just have to deal with the text at hand. Um, I forgot to introduce myself. So if you're new, you might not have met me before. It's possible. My name is Adri. That's A-D-R-I. And together with my accent, you might figure out, oh, where is he from? I'm originally from Holland. And I've been, hey, just somebody said, yeah, yeah, I got it right. Yeah, there you go. So good. And um, I've been in Pullman working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for the last seven years with international students. So you just heard this announcement about the furniture giveaway. That's something we are doing for the fifth time. And so, uh, if you have any questions about that, I'm the person to talk to. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, the text that we're going to read is all for all three Sundays is going to be from Paul. And Paul's not necessarily the easiest person to read. He likes long sentences, and uh, sometimes it's a little hard to figure out what's in there. But I think if we just go through it together, uh, God is going to have something for us. Um, what we're going to look at is Ephesians. Um, so if you want to turn to Ephesians, you can. Uh, we're starting in 1.15. Um, so chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, in the 15 verses before it, Paul simply introduces, like he normally does in letters, and then he, he gives a list of things. He said that, that, the, that he wants to... He gives a list of things that God has done for the church. So this... God has done all these amazing things. And then he starts in Ephesians 1.15 with this text. So let me read that to you. <clears throat> For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me just pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we know that your um, word is not just something um, rational, liberal, academic, or whatever word I'm looking for. It, it is your living word. It is more than that. And uh, I pray that today it won't just stay in our heads, but whatever you have to say will sink down to our heart level and transform us. So, Lord, we, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be here in this time, in the next 30 minutes. And we know you already, you already are here. We've been worshiping you. Um, Lord, but I pray specifically for this time that you will open our eyes as we go through this text. In your name, amen. So, uh, to give you a little bit of background, uh, Paul is writing this from prison. And always when I think of prison in, in Roman times, I think of a dungeon, uh, a piece of bread, like flying in the corner, a mouse running by, uh, the door, uh, something like that. But actually that wasn't quite the case. Um, he, was, he had quite a bit of freedom in his imprisonment. He was able to rent an apartment. He had people come and go. There were some guards there, uh, but he was able to do ministry. He was able to write four of the letters that he still has in the New Testament. He, uh, we know from his letters that even some of the prison guards came to be followers of Jesus. And I find that just so amazing. Like, this must have been one of the lowest points of Paul's life, right? You're, you're in prison, and he is still able to share the gospel so freely that even the people that keep him under guard start following Jesus. And he is not sure at this point. We now know that a lot of these things are like, we're not quite clear where he was, like, in which prison, where, etc., what date it exactly was. Historians always are kind of trying to figure that out. But we're fairly certain that this wasn't the, the imprisonment that eventually killed him. He, he like goes free for a little bit and then he gets imprisoned again. But he doesn't know that. From Paul's perspective, this could be any day, could be his last day. And um, in that context, he's writing this letter to Ephesus, um, but actually even more than that. If you look at this letter, you notice at the beginning that it says it's written to the Ephesians. 
Um, but there's earlier manuscripts that show that don't show the name Ephesus. And the reason for that is that it was probably a circular letter sent to multiple churches, among which Ephesus was one of the recipients. Another way that we can see that, normally Paul loves to put all kinds of personal things in his letters. He'll say, hey, thank you for Epaphroditus giving me this gift, or hey, you two should stop uh, uh, fighting with each other, and he calls people out in the church. He doesn't do that in the, church, in, in, in the letter to the Ephesians. And so we know it was probably for a larger group of people, but a group of churches that were, were dealing with certain issues uh, nonetheless. <coughs> and so he starts, in this letter he starts uh, giving thanks for them as a church. He says he's remembering them, and I always love that, like Paul's constantly praying, he's praying for all these churches he's been to, uh, and it's just a great attitude to see. And then, and uh, yeah, it says up there, Paul's wish list. I made that up last second as Simon asked me, like, what's the title? I don't know. Paul's wish list. But I think it actually captures it pretty well because he starts saying, after the Thanksgiving, he says, um, let me figure it out where it is. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's his big wish. He wants the Ephesians to know God better. And then he hashes it out a little bit. Well, what does that mean? And he says that, um, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, that you may know the glorious inheritance in his holy people, and that, he may know, that you may know the great power for us who believe. As I said earlier, we're just going to figure out what Paul's saying here. Paul's speaking, speaking to the Ephesians. We're going to figure that out and then see what that might mean to us. So the three things we're going to look at, knowing the hope, knowing the inheritance, and knowing the incomparably great power for us to believe. So let's start with the hope. Paul, in this section, shows a super stark contrast. He starts painting the picture of a victorious Jesus, a Jesus that conquered death. He's seated in the heavenly realm, that's kind of that picture of far up high, at the right hand of the Father, and we'll go into detail about that a little later, far above every other power, head over all, and then just to make certain everybody gets it, everything is under his feet. <laughs> so this Jesus is as far up as you can possibly go, as far away up. And then the stark contrast comes. He goes all the way down and he says, now remember your past, Ephesians. Where were you? And he uses as stark a language as he possibly gets, can, can use. He says, you were dead in sin. Jesus alive, you were dead. I mean, you were walking around, but you were dead. Walking dead. You lived according to the world. You lived according to the kingdom of the air. Interesting phrasing, right? Um, Jewish people at the time uh, often believed that there were seven layers of heaven. The first layer, that's where God was, and then he went all the way down, and eventually it came to the layer of the air, which is the air we breathe. And that would be the kingdom of the, the demons, of the devil, of Satan. And so he's saying, you live according to the devil. You live according to evil, according to the flesh. Very stark concept, right? Now, there's a little bit you need to know about the Ephesians. Um, they, they also, so Ephesus was a port town, a little bit like New York, lots of um, uh, business. But the one thing that, was, that set Ephesus apart from any other town 
in the Roman Empire was that they had a temple to Epaph uh, not to Epaphroditus. Did I say this right? Mm. Artemis. Artemis, that's the one. Artemis. And um, now there, there's two Artemises in, in Greek mythology. There's one. That's not the one. This is Artemis, who is a, a, a fertility goddess. And they had been having a, a, a temple of some sort there for about 800 years. And sometimes one got destroyed, they built a bigger one. And eventually, this temple was humongous. If you've ever seen a picture of the Parthenon in Athens, which is this kind of ruin with a few pillars still standing, that was a temple. This temple was four times the size. It was seen as one of the seven world wonders of the ancient world. And um, any moment, if you lived in Ephesus and you opened up your window, <laughs> that's pretty much the building you would see on the top of that hill. Uh, world leaders came to visit it. Alexander the Great went there. There was uh, lots of tourism, people going there. The whole business of the town, the identity of the town, was built around Artemis and, and, and this temple. And um, all the Gentiles, there were some Jews living there, but all the Gentiles there would be worshipping this God. And it was part of everything they did. Their work relationships, their family relationships, and um, to the point where if you chose to follow Jesus, you'd be separated from that community. You might lose your job. You might get kicked out of your family. And that might seem a little extreme, but I have met, some years ago, I met a student from Korea who, by the time I met him, he had become a Christian. But when he was back in Korea, it, he wasn't. And his family were ancestor worshippers. And as the oldest son in the family, he was expected to be the next in line to lead ancestor worship. And so the day came that his parents asked him, hey, we're going to do this ancestor worship. Are you going to lead it? And you have to figure out, okay, like there's this big honor-shame thing in Korean culture, right? You need to honor your parents. You don't want to shame him. But he also wanted to do what is right and follow Jesus. And so he chose to say, I really want to honor you, but I can't do this because I'm a follower of Jesus. For years, that was a super painful place. His family didn't want anything to do with him. And over time, I can tell you some of that, those relationships have healed. But I think the same thing is happening here. It's way easier for the Ephesians to say, hey, I'm just going to worship this Artemis. I'm just going to be part of this society, keep my job, keep my relationship. That looks so much more appealing than uh, being part of this small church that is is under persecution, and life is just harder. And I think that's why, why Paul says, you were dead. He uses this really strong language to make certain, it looks really appealing, it isn't really appealing. Yes, it looks appealing, but reality is different. You were dead. Another reason why I think he uses this really strong contrast is because contrast helps us to figure out where we have been. Uh, if you've driven by my house in the last year or so, you might have noticed a white van standing there with one wheel missing. It was there for about nine months. People started making jokes about it. And um, it took, uh, because of all kinds of reasons, it was very expensive to, to fix, and so I, I tried to work on it with Derek a little bit, and then something else broke, and I got a friend of a friend to help me. and it, and so in the middle of the winter, I remember just sitting there, there's snow out there, and I'm looking at, like, it just parking straight in front of my window, and I'm just seeing this thing, and it's kind of just like, 
something is stinging you, right? Like, and then finally a month ago, we got it fixed. It's driving great now. But before it broke, I didn't really care when I drove the car. I was just a vehicle to get from A to B. After nine months looking at it from my window and it finally drove, it was the most exciting thing to drive ever. <laughs> I was the most excited person. I really appreciated my car. Now, why did I appreciate it? Because I knew where my car had been in my driveway, not moving. Where we have been helps us to appreciate where we are right now. Story in Luke, um, Jesus goes to a Pharisee's home and that's Pharisee is called Simon. And something really awkward happens. A lady walks in, and she's crying. She goes to the feet of Jesus, starts crying on his feet, and takes her hair to, to wipe the, the, the tears from her feet. Then she takes oil, and she starts pouring it all over it. I mean, I'm just imagining that like, this must be a little awkward for most people involved here, right? And Simon, he's thinking to himself, like, if Jesus is really a prophet, he, he would know if this is a sinner. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. There once were two people who were borrowing money from a moneylender. One of them, 50 denarii, the other, 500 denarii. Neither of them was able to pay back the debt. So the moneylender said, your sins are forgiven. No, not your sins, your debts are forgiven. And he asked Simon, so who of those two people do you think loved him more? Who loved the moneylender more? And he says, well, probably the one whose debt was biggest, because the biggest debt has been forgiven. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. I came into your house, and you didn't have any water for my feet. But this woman came in, and she has been crying and wiping off my feet continuously. You didn't give me any oil for my head, and she has been putting, pouring this entire bottle of oil on my feet. You haven't given me a single kiss, which is normal uh, in, that, in that time, but she's been kissing me from the moment she came inside. If a large sin is forgiven, you will love, mo- uh, love much, but if a little bit of sin has been forgiven, you'll love a little bit. And I think that's what Paul is saying here as well. Like, if you don't remember where you have been, if you don't remember the depth of your sin, of how far removed from God you were, you are never going to appreciate the grace that God has given you. And so, my first question here for you is, I'll, I'll have three questions, and at the end you guys can choose and reflect on one of those. Uh, knowing where you have been helps you to understand the grace of God better. So where have you been? What has God done for you? That's question number one to remember uh, and, and think about later on. So the second thing that Paul looks at when he uh, when he says, well, what he wants the church to know is the inheritance. There's this picture of Christ being raised to the heavenly realm, seated on the right hand, and then there's another picture of us being raised with Christ, seated with Christ. And I think that's the picture of that inheritance. Somehow we're both there with him. Now, the right hand in Jewish culture was a special hand. It had special significance. We don't really do that as much nowadays. But uh, last year I got the opportunity to go to Indonesia. And before I went there, I'd never been there before, so I wanted to make sure I got a few of the cultural ins and outs right. I can tell you one thing, whenever you cross cultures, if you do that here in the United States or you do that abroad, you're going to make mistakes. And there's no way of avoiding that. But at least you can try to be a little bit like culturally sensitive and figure out 
how people are living and, and what is the best way to, to, to dress and how to interact. And so one of the things that somebody told me is Indonesians use pretty much the right hand for anything public. If you go and give somebody a hand, if you pay them money, um, for, for even for eating, you use your right hand. And then they told me, and I don't know if this is true, but they said, your left hand is for everything unhygienic. So if you go to the bathroom, you use your left hand to eat, you use your right hand, and the two should never meet. In Jewish society, it is somewhat similar. Right hand had special significance. Um, it was the, the, the hand which you would yield sword, so it showed power and strength. In uh, Psalms 110, uh, the beginning, uh, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There was some kind of trans... Um, I want to say transition. That's not quite the word I'm looking for. A power and authority would go from the person in power to the person on his or her right hand. So a king, if, if you were sitting on the right hand, you would kind of get some of that power and authority and if you went out you could you could make decisions based on the power and authority of the king. There was a, a transaction, that's the word I was looking for, a transaction of power and authority. Transfer, transfer, thank you. See, we're doing this together, we're, we're improving the sermon. Um, so Jesus has power and authority and we're sitting with Jesus in the heavenly realm. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but the wording of inheritance is interesting. A lot of the time when we think of inheritance, we think of um, somebody passes away, leaves a certain amount of money or an estate, and that then goes to the person, uh, uh, normally family member that is, is closest to this person. But I think inheritance can also uh, be seen in slightly different ways. Uh, a friend of mine from Indonesia that I met down in Los Angeles as a student, um, his dad was in real estate and construction uh, combination company. It was his company. And my friend, Adam, knew that when he was going, to ba going back to Indonesia, he would inherit that business. Father didn't necessarily have to die to do that. It was just he was going to retire, and he was going to get that. And the interesting thing was that because he knew what his inheritance was, which was his business, all his decisions that he made as a student lined up with that inheritance. So he would take business classes, and eventually he did an MBA, all in line with, I'm going to be running that business, I better be ready. Or I was thinking of little Prince George, I don't know how little he is anymore, but he was born a few years ago, right? Now, if you look at Prince Charles, you know, he's getting close to 70 and he's still not king. Uh, so it might take a little while before little Prince George is king. But his whole life is set up in such a way that eventually he will inherit the throne of Great Britain. So, I think the same thing is true for the inheritance that we have in Christ. When we know the inheritance that Christ has given us, we need to figure out how our life lines up with that inheritance. I'm thinking back of a Dutch student uh, that was part of our international ministry back in Holland. He, he was an atheist. He was a PhD student in, in exact sciences. I don't remember the specific um, direction he was taking. And in our group, he came to faith. And he looked back on everything he had done, which was pretty much advancing his career. And he realized he needed to do something in light of this inheritance. He finished his PhD, but he decided, I'm going to go to places 
but people don't know about Jesus and work there. And so he worked in Italy, he worked in Uganda, he worked in a variety of different places, and been part of churches there, making sure that people who don't know about Christ get to know about him. And so everything that he did lined up with that, uh, that inheritance. And so that gets me to, uh, well, let me, let me add one more thing, because when we think about power and authority, um, you can misuse power and authority, right? So if, if Jesus gives us power and authority, can we just do with it whatever we want? And I think the, the answer to that is in Acts 1, when Jesus says, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, um, but, you, sorry, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the power that we get from the Holy Spirit has a very specific direction as well, which is to be witnesses wherever we go. And so in light of that, the example of Eric, the Dutch student, uh, makes perfect sense. He understood the power and authority that he had, that he had to go and witness to, to people um, in other places. Okay, I'm, I'm mixing things up here a little bit, but let's go to the next one. Hope you're still tracking with me. To know the power. That's the third thing. Okay, I'll, I'll stop here. Too, many text, too much text on, my, on my, uh, my page. I want to ask you a question first. Are there life changes you should make based on your knowledge of this inheritance? So if you know the inheritance of Jesus, of Christ, that we have, are there life changes you should make? So that's another reflective question that comes at the end. And now I'm jumping into knowing the power. Um, so Paul wants us to know the power for us who believe. And he says it in a really interesting way after that. So he says he wants us to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So again, leave it to Paul to make super long sentences. But he says that the power for us who believe is the same as the mighty strength that raised Jesus from the dead. So that's an amazing kind of power that he says that we have access to. And notice that when the picture there is of us being raised with Christ, seated with Christ, Paul uses past he doesn't say we are going to be raised up in the future. We're going to be seated with Christ in the future. He uses past tense. We somehow, even though we see this reality in front of us, and we sometimes feel that the authority and power of the world might look stronger than the authority and power of Jesus, somehow we have that authority and power already because we're already seated with Christ. We're already raised with Christ right now. And that's just kind of an amazing picture. And I wonder what the Ephesians would think about that, because I just explained to you that they have this big temple, everybody is, is, is worshipping this fertility goddess, and they probably feel insignificant. They, in their day-to-day -day life, they don't feel they have authority, they don't feel they have power. And here comes Paul along saying, but you do. You're seated with Christ. You have the power that is resurrection power. And I think it must be super encouraging for them. 
And as I just said before, the direction of which that power is to be used is to be witnesses, to be witnesses for Christ. Now, as I am in, in ministry where with specifically international students, I know quite a few PhD students, and I also know that in the science department, it's often really difficult to stay strong in your faith, to proclaim and be witnesses. Uh, a lot of time, it feels like people are trying to make fun of you, and often they do. And so it's super hard, I, I know that from experience, to in some of these departments, to really feel that you can be a witness for Christ. But I have met students over time that have lived in such a way that you can see they don't believe that the, uh, the authority and the power of the university is bigger than that of God. Now, I'm not saying that the university is bad. I'm not saying that at all. But I think in our heads, sometimes worldly authority and power seems bigger than that of God, but which it isn't, as we see from this passage. And these students would continue to witness. And they had issues. There were like there was one supervisor said, I don't want to work with you anymore. And he had to find another supervisor, which was hard. Um, there were people that rejected and said, no, we're not going to come to this Bible study. But over the six, seven years that normally PhD takes, right, they invited people and they came to our group and they heard about Jesus Christ. And what I found really amazing is that when they did their dissertation, their end presentation, uh, both of them did this, and I've never seen this before. At the end of the presentation, you normally thank people. You thank, normally you start with your supervisor and then probably your family and your friends and anybody else who supported you. Both of them said, like, First thing they said was, I want to thank God for supporting me through this PhD. I was like, I can barely believe it. Like, he's actually saying this in a science department at the university, but they did. And I think it's such an amazing witness because they understood the authority and power of Jesus Christ is bigger than that of the university. And uh, of course, that's the place where, where I want to be too. So my third question here is, what does it mean in your context to believe the reality that you have access to God's resurrection power and authority today? So let's put all those three questions on here. Do we have those on there? And um, maybe have the worship team come and play a little music while we take a few minutes to think about these questions. So you can just choose one of these questions. You don't have to answer all of them, just one of them. And just take a little bit of time. So Paul has this wish list for us, to know God better. And uh, I think that's an amazing wish list of all the ways that we can know God better. And I think when I just look at it and, and reflect on it myself, there's so many more places where I need to remember where I've been, uh, remember what the inheritance is that Christ has given me, because so often I don't walk in it and to understand the power and authority that Jesus has and has given to us to be his witnesses in the world. So let me pray this over you, what Paul said. Paul says, and I say to you, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, 
and his incomparably great power for us to believe. So go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.